Welcome to the Turd Nerds Podcast. You are tuning in to the Functional Gastroenterology Podcast with hosts Dr. Alana Gervich, Dr. Ami Kapadia, and Dr. Rebecca Sand. Let us tell you quickly who we are. I am Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician, acupuncturist, and educator based in Portland, Oregon. My practice specializes in the microbiome, hormone conditions, and conditions of the gut-brain access. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia. I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and holistic medicine with a special interest in digestive health, the microbiome, and its effects on our overall health. And I am Dr. Alana Gervich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, and other functional GI disorders. Okay, let's take the plunge into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Welcome back to another episode of the Turd Nurse Podcast. This is an episode that is pretty close to my heart because I feel like you know, my goal of this episode is really to explain how we, as three individual clinicians, look at and take a GI history. Mm-hmm. I have been at this point training residents for 11 years. And when I, when I, you know, way in like the first couple of weeks of their training, when I'm breaking down these concepts, they are looking at me like, whoa, like, why did nobody ever teach me this in school? Why is not common knowledge? Which makes me think, it's not getting taught in school and it's not mm-hmm. common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make a, I wanted to like talk about how I explain it to them. And then I wanted to understand how you guys are taking a GI intake. And, you know, I'm hoping that this is useful as a tool for clinicians when they're working with patients. Yeah. I Also for patients, though, like, uh, is your doctor asking you these questions? Because, you know, a lot of people don't and they miss a lot of information. When I'm approaching an intake, and I've revised my version of this, too, so I'm excited to hear both your brains on this, but I'm looking for the highest yield because we both know or we all know that there are questions that are just going to launch patients into a massive story that we actually don't need to know and can kind of waste some time. So how can we get to like the biggest bang for our buck with the questions and the things that are really giving us information about their microbiome, their health history, treatments they've tried, treatments they've failed, like all of that. So let me start, let me start with my big picture view. When I'm interviewing a patient for, this is our new, I've never met them before. This is a brand new patient. We've never seen them before. I'm listening to their history and my big, my first question is what part of the digestive system is broken? Mm. Is this upper GI esophageal stomach, is this small bowel disorder mm-hmm. or is this a large bowel disorder? Mm-hmm. It's very important to know that there are definitely patients who have issues in all three, mm-hmm. but what I am trying to circle into is what broke first yep. and what's causing the most problems now. Yep. And those three those three areas are going to directly determine how I work them up to figure out what the underlying cause is. Makes sense. So what do you ask? Okay. So my first question is like, uh, while I'm listening to the history, if there, if this is an esophageal or stomach issue, I'm going to be looking for a lot of dyspepsia, a lot of reflux signs or GERD, a lot of ulcer pain, stomach, uh, stomach pains, uh, like p- symptoms that happen pretty immediately after eating, mm-hmm. chronic discomfort, eating will generally make them yeah. worse. And their symptoms are always tied to very close into the eating window. Right. So that if, would be, if stomach. Ha- you know, what standard workup they've had for 
you know, have they had an EGD? Have they had a barium swallow? What kinds of things have they had evaluated so far? Have they seen a GI specialist, etc.? Totally. Yeah. How, and then the other part of that is how severe are their symptoms? Like a lot of patients, like, you know, we get patients through our doors as integrated medicine providers in one of two ways. One way is we have the people that are like, I do not want to be in the system. I do not want to see an MD. I don't want to see a gastro. I don't believe in medicine. Like th- that's- No a- offense. I mean- <laughs> No. I mean, that that is a portal into- people who come see us. And then the other portal into how people come see us is I've done all that stuff and it hasn't worked. That's probably more of who I see. That's what I see too. Yeah. Yeah, I so when I start out with a patient, I'm like, I want to get caught up on your history because I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to recommend things that you've already tried and failed. So give me the best you can from when this started, like the heavy hitting milestones. So major treatments you've tried, what happened? Imaging you've had, what happened? Diagnoses you've received, like any colonoscopies, anything to just catch me up to speed. It's really important. I just want to expand on that. I want to see the reports. Yeah, if we can. I do not want the patient to tell me yep. that somebody told them. It was that, normal. Yep. Yeah. Totally. I want to. And that that is a key thing, reading the reports. Mm-hmm. And like, this is reading the reports of like an endoscopy or EGD, but this is also reading the reports of a functional st- a, a test, test, a SIBO test. For a, sure. A SIBO test. Like, yep. And I think the biggest, the what with Dr. Gurevich's talk on some of the causes of diarrhea and making sure they've ruled out microscopic colitis. I, you know, this just wasn't done when they've had their colonoscopy yep. many times. So. And I am not sure I've seen an endoscopy where they did enough biopsies to rule out celiac. Like we talked about in the episode, the number required, like people do one. Mm-hmm. One biopsy. And, you know. And just so I just want to right there, like yeah. the patient's going to be like, no, they tested me for celiac and I'm done. Yeah. And that like I think eight out of 10 providers would be like they tested her for celiac and she's done. Yeah. But if you're not reading the report and looking at the biopsies, you do not actually know that that patient was tested mm-hmm. for celiac. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. So so important to to read the report because also the standards have changed over time where, again, I don't think I even learned about microscopic colitis in medical school. So right. we now have, we do have great GI doctors in the area. And now they're telling the patient we should, even if you had the colonoscopy, we should recheck because you might have this. I was very happy to see that. But if they had it 10 years ago, it might not have been checked. So. Yeah. So I think the, the value here is like ask about past providers mm-hmm. and do a records request specifically for lab labs and imaging and any like diagnostic studies because we need to get our eyes on those. And that is actually one of the things that uh, like my I talk to patients about. I'll often do a 15 minute free consult with mm-hmm. them just to see if they're a good fit for me. And I'll be like, what I need from you is I need you to get all of your reports. Totally. Let's start even before the visit. Let's start so I can look it over while we're together and I can explain to you what sentence was finished. Mm-hmm. You know, where was this paragraph closed and what is a dot, dot, dot that mm-hmm. was never followed up on. Mm-hmm. And that's where we should be starting, not like where you are today. Yeah. I I recently had a patient who lots of significant bowel issues and had a colonoscopy recently um, because of a lot of blood in stool and called the gastro's office to confirm like the results because she never got them and there was no follow up. And the person on the phone just said, yep, it was completely normal. Nothing. Meanwhile, this person's bleeding with every bowel movement. And I got the report and it, it actually didn't say anything but diverticula you know, in the intestines, but like no mention of hemorrhoids, nothing in there, but it wasn't completely benign. Like there, there were outpouchings and whatnot, but that was completely normal to the viewer, you know, reading that report. So, and another, sorry, another another thing I've seen frequently is 
patients with upper abdominal or right upper quadrant pain and they say they've been ruled out for gallbladder disease, there's been an ultrasound, but they didn't order mm-hmm. a HIDA scan. Do you guys right. see that frequently, that it's just that next step wasn't taken and it's just been yes. stopped? Okay. Yes. And that's why we need to be, like, if we're looking at it, if we're looking at it with our integrative eyes, with our naturopathic eyes, with our functional medicine eyes. Or just a regular good looking at. <laughs> just low bar. Doing our due diligence. Like do Because, I, I mean, we always learned if the ultrasound's normal, but they're having that kind of pain, you need to get a, a it's actually a functional test, right? A HIDA scan to see if the gallbladder is functioning properly, right. even if there's not stones. So, so basically the intake, we ask our patients about this to get an idea of what's out there. Right. We're not taking their word at face value, even though we want to believe our patients and believe their symptoms, what their assessment was, because they probably were not told the truth in some cases. Or it got lost in translation. Yep. which is more often exactly. what happens. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it was... I, I think it usually is just probably a time issue and a communication for issue sure. and the number of patients that these and poor people are required exactly. to see. And a, we have different standards on things. You know, I, We might be looking for different things, exactly. too. So. Exactly. I've seen a number of people order functional stool lab testing and say it was completely normal. And I get it in my hands and I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, I got some work to do. I, I had, There's this one patient in particular who was seeing me... Uh, and it was a virtual, you know, it was COVID times and it was a, we started out virtually and we continued virtually, but she had a, you know, some kind of stool test and I was like, okay, can I see it? And I was like, oh, you had diantamoeba fragilis and blastocystis hominide. Those are two mm-hmm. protozoa. And she was like, oh yeah, the doctor just told me it was fine. Mm-hmm. And it might be fine. They yeah. might be protozoa, but yeah. for some people, they're pathologic, uh-huh. and her symptoms sure did match what a protozoal overgrowth would look and like. And with treatment, they get better. And the opposite, there's a one or two particular functional stool tests that I feel like over-diagnose things and scare mm-hmm. the patients get scared into thinking they have all these problems, and then I take their history, and I'm like... I think you're okay, and mm-hmm. maybe we created more problems by giving you this. So I think, again, yeah. just looking at it ourselves and going it over with the patient. That's a really good point. It may not, they may think they have all kinds of things going on, and those tests can change from day to day, like inflammatory markers that they're exactly. checking in the stool and these kinds of things. Yeah, so. it gives us an, like a door to educate our patients on what this means, because odds are when they come to us, People didn't adequately explain, this is what this test is looking for. These are the, like, you know, referencing back to our secretory IJ episode, this is what this means. This is what this doesn't mean. Right. Um, this is what it could potentially mean. Yep. And so the other side of that, the first side is, did you look at their history? Did you collect all their data? The second side of this is, is their primary complaint an upper GI esophageal or stomach issue? Yep. What is the testing that we want to do that only focuses on that upper GI mm-hmm. stomach pathology, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to do the thousand tests like from the bottom to the top. Yep. You need to prioritize this symptom picture is really upper GI. Mm-hmm. Let's prioritize testing and working up and cleaning up this upper system yep. to see if that corrects it down the line. Mm-hmm. So that would be stomach esophageal, right? Mm-hmm. The next thing I'm looking for is, is it a small bowel disorder? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is the trickiest, but also my favorite. Yes, I would agree with that, okay. actually. You have a favorite GI. I okay. Yeah. My favorite organ is the small intestine. <laughs> I think I am more partial to the large intestine, <laughs> okay, but I support okay, you. Right. Well, that's why we're a team. Um, So the small intestine, what we're looking for there, the most common symptom that I see in the small intestine is bloating. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, the stomach, uh, when you have gas in the stomach, you belch, it goes on up. Mm -hmm. When you have gas in the large intestine, you fart, it goes on down. When you have gas in the small intestine, there's a valve on the top and there's a valve on the bottom. It's stuck. You bloat. Yep. 
Totally. And so then I'm like, okay, is this a small bowel issue? Is the small bowel the thing that's looking like it's not working? Mm -hmm. Pain after eating, but not directly after eating Mm -hmm. within, you know, an hour or so. Lots of bloating, lots of dyspepsia, like Mm -hmm. feel unsettled stomach or even like food stagnation is what we call Mm -hmm. it in Chinese medicine. Those are all small bowel disorders. If I'm going to see that, I want to see what kind of imaging they had, mm-hmm. what kind of testing. Did they have a proper celiac test? Yep. Did they? And then, and then the other thing is, I want to see is there something that's showing me a fungal overgrowth, a bacterial overgrowth mm-hmm. within the small intestine? Yeah. That would be a SIBO test. My preference is lactulose. I'm sure people will argue that glucose has value. Boy, will they? Yep. Uh, fungal overgrowth, stuff like that. And then on top of that, what I will say, which is shocking to me, is how many providers, both conventional and integrative, do not ha- know how to properly read, like, a SIBO test? Mm-hmm. Like, that happens all of the time. I know. Still. Yep. That's why I request them. A really good episode would be then, uh, next time, going into the workup of the different three mm-hmm. sections that we're, you're dividing yep. this up in. But yeah, go ahead. That's a really good point. So, that, so then that's when I want to... Like, I had a patient just come in on Friday, and she came in with six... SIBO tests Mm -hmm. and she was like well I mean they they went to net they went normal and then now they're abnormal and I was like looking at them you know I'm like three three years deep and I was like they were never normal Mm -hmm. but also you've had seven of them and you treated them again and again and again I don't think SIBO is your problem that's it that's it like barking up the wrong tree yeah right yeah unless it never went unless it never shifted and she wasn't treated appropriately but Yeah. yeah in my experience when it doesn't shift that actually has more to do with the fact that there's something else right. going on that's preventing it from shifting. Yeah, right. I, like I tell my patients, I, I have no doubt you have SIBO. I definitely think you have SIBO. I just don't think it's your biggest problem. Right. You know, but it's good to look at those results. All right, when you're asking to order things like functional lab testing, are you going all the way back? Or are you saying in the last year, last five years? I want to say at least, if I can get three to five years, okay. I'm curious. That's what I, yeah. I asked for functional tests within the last five years, yep. regular routine work. lab work in the last year. Yep. If they've had uh, procedures, then even further back, like endoscopy, colonoscopy. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I would go as far back as I can go for those. Right. For the procedures. Yeah. And, you know, inflammatory bowel disease is one of my favorite things to treat and one of my specialties. Um, It's really important for me to see where a patient got resected. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a thing that's going to change their anatomy from for the rest of their lives. Totally. I need to see where they've been resected. Yeah. And scar tissue. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of SIBO. Yeah, totally. OK, so and then like what would help you think of lower bowel? Type so stuff? lower bowel, they don't have the bloating. Yep. They It's like. They're having problems with defecation. I will say, unless they're constipated. And I, like, I ask patients where their bloating is, um, because if it's in that, like, right lower quadrant, like, by the appendix, it's probably backed up stool. And if we get their bowels moving, it goes, like, that can... That is a super true point. Yeah, the tube is plugged. Yep. And, I mean, this is a conversation where there is no black or white. Mm -hmm. There is, like, in, when you're differentiating between the large and the small intestine, Mm -hmm. it is a bunch of gray. Mm -hmm. I usually will prioritize what seems like the biggest problem yeah. and treat it yeah. and then see if I'm right. I, I think of it as a tube. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the digestive tract really is a tube and where where, where, where is, is the problem, which or... is kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. But one of my, like, lately I've been doing this approach of just, can we get the tube regulated from a motility standpoint? And then reassess what the problem is. So can you, I, there, you just use a keyword from a motility standpoint. Yeah. Can you explain that? 
Because that's a big thing. Yeah. I mean, so it's a tube that needs to move. Uh-huh. <laughs> I hear that. We are just a tube. We're just worms. Tube that needs to move. If something stopped for some reason, whether it's adhesions in the small intestine, whether it's stool in the large intestine, whatever it is. Whether it's or an dysfunct- motility, dysmotility. Which yep. A dysfunctional nervous system yep. that's not moving the yep. tube. Yep. Serotonin deficiencies, like medication side effects. I mean, the list goes on with that. But if I can get people regulated with, let's say, prokinetics, laxatives, get their stool slowing down, you know, if they're they're having urgent diarrhea, things like that, and then reassess. Did that solve the bloating? Did that solve the nausea? Like, did it solve all your problems? Or, okay, now you're pooping regularly, but you still have X, Y, and Z. That helps me decide right, right. where in the body the problem, the root of the problem might be. Right. Because, yeah, we've I've had patients where the constipation improves, but they're still having significant bloating totally. when it becomes more confusing. But some people, we get their bowels out, give them a <laughs> and week, and they get better. And we yeah. never see them again because they get much to go better live their outcome. life. So yeah. I had this patient come in. <laughs> Wasn't my story, we'll say. <laughs> but if but... we can pick it, that's a better <laughs> yeah. way I had to go. a patient come in, you know, young woman with a young child at home, uh, toddler, and she came in looking easily seven or eight months pregnant. Yeah. Like, she came in so distended. I, just, I literally, I didn't say anything, but I just Aww. assumed she was pregnant. Yeah. And um, we were talking, talking, and she was like, well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I saw a gastro and he told me to use Miralax and I used it for a week and everything felt better. But then I stopped using it because I don't want to be on a drug because, you know, there's this bias of I don't want to take anything. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be on a drug. And then everything came back and now I'm like super distended and I just don't poop. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can we just put you on the Miralax? Right. I mean, like it's cheap. Yeah. I, do I love polyethanol glycol? No. But did it work for her? It's probably mm-hmm. better than not having bowel movements. Definitely better than not having bowel movements. Definitely better. Out. And it's yeah. not our only tool. Yeah. Right. But here's the thing. It's for temporary. It worked. It totally works. And on her follow-up, which was like, I think I saw her two weeks later, she did not look pregnant. I will say the vast majority of my people coming in for diarrhea or constipation, but especially constipation, like we'll do some blood work if they haven't had that done. But I'm holding off on a lot of the expensive functional lab testing until I get their bowels moving and I'm like try this like easy protocol whether it's like osmotics bulk forming whatever cheap easy to tolerance and then follow up and as we learned fluid fiber and movement exactly might all three be missing a hundred percent yes and and sometimes just, the bowels need to be jump-started. Like, we just got to get it moving. Right, get things moving. And then the body takes over. Yeah. I, I also want to say, though, with bloating or any of these other symptoms, it helps me elucidate if there's a, a hormonal component. Mm-hmm. Because there often is, thanks uh-huh. to the estrobilon. Yeah. Yep. Big time. So yep. is that bloating, like, specifically around their cycle, but we didn't know because there's a little bloating with the constipation, you know, like, it just and gives you, us just more just a reminder, women are significantly more more likely to be, A, oh, either man. be constipated or, B, report to the doctor. <laughs> about their constipation uh-huh. like but it doesn't matter women have hor- cycling women in their fertile years have hormones that definitively affect their bowel movements mm-hmm. and honestly if you ask like any female that asks 75 percent of her friends they will tell you they either have constipation or diarrhea prior to their period or during sure bloating yeah and if you're not pooping right whether it's too fast or too slow it's going to throw off your hormones and... well because with the constipation with estrogen detox right yep. so that's going to get yep Got to unplug the bathtub. So then, draining. so now we're like, okay, small bowel, we work that up. We're going to focus yep. on that. That seems like the primary issue. That can also be a constipation factor yep. within that. So it, just because the large intestine isn't working right doesn't mean it's not, doesn't mean it's the large intestine. It could also be the small intestine making the large intestine not mm-hmm. work right. Mm-hmm. But you unpack that. And then if it if it's not that, then you start to get the wheels going. But then you also do the functional or the regular GI workup. Yeah. You know, like 
if the, if it's if it's seeming like it might be an IBD like picture, mm-hmm. make really push for the scope. Totally. Yep. Can I just throw in, you know how we like to get obsessed with like uh, macro, micronutrients, uh-huh. other. So I'm recently obsessed with fiber. We visited uh, some relatives who are doing, I- I'm not saying everyone should do this, but they're doing, you know, fully plant-based diet for, for cardiac reasons and following some of the work of people like Michael Greger and Essenstein, all these different uh, doctors who, who really advocate for plant-based diets. And so I've become obsessed with fiber recently. And I feel like uh, I feel like the morning oatmeal has gotten a bad, bad rap. Has it? Because it's the... one of my favorites. Oh, I didn't. I've never seen you. I've seen you eat oatmeal once. No, no, no. Not, oh. for, not for me, actually. Okay. I, my body does okay with oatmeal, but not nearly as good as it does but with eggs. But for fiber, I, okay, so here's what I figured out. You pro- you don't want to eat just like plain oatmeal, but I can now get twelve to fifteen grams of fiber in with breakfast and not have any blood sugar instability nice. by doing oatmeal plus a berry blend, huh. blackberries, etc. You can get seven grams of fiber in a serving of okay. berries. There's five to six grams of fiber in the oatmeal, uh-huh. flaxseed. Crush up some nuts if you have some dental challenges like mm-hmm. me, or you know, eat them whole. <laughs> And I've got like literally twelve to fifteen grams of fiber with breakfast. Do you know what you're? Bravo, do you know what? Whoa, 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 I'm gonna. I've been I'm, so excited, and it tastes uh-oh. amazing. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna one up, one up you. you. You need to add chia in there. Yeah. I, it get okay. I got. I have some oh. dental challenge. The chia seed gets. Yeah, her stuck, dental okay. challenge is she has braces. And that's some, her dental challenge. I, it's more than that, but we don't need to go into the details. <laughs> Um, so I left out the chia for we'll now, but I I agree. The, but chi, like, so what we're doing at my house because it's the easiest breakfast ever is uh, overnight oats. Right, right. I like to. I mean, I like it hot. Oh, you, yeah. I, so. I same. Same. I you overnight oats. Roomed. So my my. If yeah. I'm gonna do an overnight oat, which I probably can get away with, like one maybe two times a week. Right. But I don't. T- it's not great right. for my body. But I'll do like. Uh, oats and then the chia, which gets soft, so it's not like like sticky anymore right, to your right. teeth. Okay. And then maybe. the fruits that you're doing, I'll also add protein because for me, I need protein for my blood sugar. The peanut pro- butter and the nuts and the oats have protein. I, I'll do peanut and butter nuts. and yogurt. Okay. And nuts. <laughs> Ooh, I like the yogurt. Yeah, and the peanut butter is also really creamy oh, in this other butter. way. Totally. Who doesn't love peanut butter? Yeah. Uh, anybody who has aphylatoxin sensitivity? Yeah. Or moldies <laughs> out there. Actually, yeah. Yeah, okay. I can't believe Dr. Kapati is like, <laughs> yeah. who doesn't like I peanut butter? Yeah, I, I was expecting some backlash on that one over there, but okay. So, okay. Okay, sorry. Anything it's left on that? Yeah, a bit of a tangent. I d- love talking about breakfast. Detail, yeah. um, anything else on the large intestine? I feel like that's the, the question is, is that where you're supposed to start? Is that the organ that's broken? And yep. again, the, the one thing that we didn't talk about is peristalsis yeah. from a different neurological standpoint because, oh, yeah. you know, hormones can make the GI go funny, but also nerves can make the GI go and funny. And actual yeah. neurologic disorders, MS, Parkinson's, et cetera, and or stress. Yeah. Also, or also, small fiber neuropathies will have a great impact totally. on the GI tract. And that is one that we are kind of blind to. Yep. And then also, you know, can we really talk about the GI without talking about the histamine? Mean mm-hmm. picture. Oh and yeah. Like you know, so when you're taking the history, you're like, is there other histamine stuff here? Like, yeah. am I thinking about this as as one of the the core causes of the underlying cause? So maybe we can break this into like HPI type questions. Like, okay. how many bowel movements a day are you having? Any blood, mucus, undigested food? Any oil in your stool? That kind of stuff. And then the review of systems. That's going to be like, do you have allergies? You know. So I have learned uh, through years of experience mm-hmm. that I no longer say how many bowel movements a day. Mm-hmm. I now say how many bowel movements a day or a week. Yep. Totally. Because somebody will answer. 
you don't one or two. Say, are you constipated and move on? No, you constipated. <laughs> okay, so constipation. That was a I trap. Know. That was a trap. I say, how often are you having a bowel movement? Yeah, and then I'll show them the Bristol school stool chart. Yeah. I happen to have a Bristol stool chart right now that matches the stool with a food. Oh, I feel like I saw it's the you. Best. Is well, did someone give four? you this? No sausage. Oh, uh, I found it online <laughs> okay. and then I downloaded it because it's so good. So it's like whenever I see one of Dr. Gurevich's patients, they uh, have they know the Bristol stool know, chart better than me. I know. I'm like, wait, what's so? <laughs> yeah, I have to look up which one it is. <laughs> it's, yeah, every so my diagram has rabbit droppings is number one, or uh, a <laughs> bunch of that? grapes is number two. Oh, rabbit droppings. Rabbit droppings because you there's no food like around. I get I guess grapes would Hazelnuts. be number one. Yeah. A bunch of grapes is number two. <laughs> corn on the cob. Terrible tangent. Corn on the cob oh, is number three. Yeah, Sausage yeah. is four. Chicken nuggets is five. And you want. You wait. wait porridge is six. Gravy is seven. Okay. And you want a three or a four? That would be ideal. You know the porridge and gravy. That's good because I yes. think people get confused by the picture. Yes. Uh, you know what else? I'm in the process of uh, my big conference that I put on every year is actually next week. Yeah. And we're getting all of these like emojis. And I was like talking to my co or conference planner and I was like, why are all of the emojis a Bristol six and not a Bristol four? Yeah. Like they're yeah. all a Bristol six. That's really? not a healthy stool. Yeah. They're all like little uh, like. Oh, a, you're right. Yeah. You know, totally. Uh, it's the little poop pile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Even. Yeah. What, what Dr. Kavadi was saying is we have a little group chat and our, it's our logo. Which is a Bristol Six. Like, that's but not a healthy also food. also the Turd Nerds logo. But we do specialize in, you know, things gone wrong. Yeah, so. it's true. They're that's not, a good point. Patients it's usually don't point. come in with the four. Yeah, people yeah. yeah. don't come in with the four. No one would be listening. Yeah. Those people are just out. I don't know and what they with all their time. And that's why we can make this podcast for free. <laughs> okay, so I have a list of questions, too, that I'm sure we all share. Maybe I'll just start listing them off and we can discuss. History of food poisoning. Mm-hmm. I ask, do you know what the food was? Oh, why? What are you thinking there? Because I, if I, like some people, it's, yeah, I ate that like raw oyster versus Thai food. Bacteria. Totally. Got it. Cool. Yeah. And a lot, I mean, you'd be surprised at how many people are like, oh yeah, boy, do I know what it was, you know? Or like... I don't ask that question, but I don't know how but I don't ask that question. But if it's not acute, that, it, yes, yeah, but, but it's it parasite versus tells bacteria. Me what potentially I just could assume have seen they all there. got it all. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, and you know, recently a lot of it because a lot of people were going to Mexico during COVID. Oh, that um, was a problem. It was no people. I mean, could vary... actually, you should go if you want. Totally, I know. And then <laughs> and you take, take Dr. Gervich's <laughs> travel <laughs> protocol, for sure, and then you'll be good. Sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people can even differentiate like it was the cilantro on that taco. Bacteria. They I do only buy cilantro meat. that's grown in the U.S. Yeah, we had that shot. <laughs> I, I made a mental note to do that too, and then okay, wait, forget. wait. I did not. I was not oh, part of this. My trip. husband he goes crazy. He's like, I can't keep up with your. St- I totally you buy it yourself did it on this podcast. Uh, no, I don't remember. Yeah, you no. Dr. Chang told you only by cilantro grown in america yep it could be watered with sewage water and other yeah but don't you rinse it before you use it i don't know that it gets it all out and i don't cook it back to secretory (laughs) iga you're you're missing out you're missing out uh okay another one history oh do we want to talk about why we ask about food poisoning no uh yes yes i mean precursor to ibs motility issues post-infectious ibs yep yeah okay um history of traveler's diarrhea yes i will also ask where and what symptoms? Because people do not always categorize traveler's diarrhea as the same thing. They'll be like, oh, yeah, I had that in, you know, Costa Rica. And then when I ask further, they just vomited the entire time. 
So that's a small bowel. Exactly. That's not looking at large bowel. Yeah, these are Their genius. bowels were actually okay. You know, so I do a little bit deeper digging. What were your symptoms and where were you? Okay, I just want to say... And how were you treated? This is why a good history is the most important tool we have as clinicians. And I mean, right the vomiting here. is probably food poisoning that they'll self-resolve, right? Right. So. Yeah, yeah, versus, yeah. Lots but also you're thinking more small bowel as opposed to large bowel. And I'm right. also wanting to know, like, was it the water you had? Was it a fresh fruit you had? Was it something cooked? Was it seafood? Was it meat? You know? Um, okay. Uh, history of parasite or protozoa known? Because a lot of people will be like, I don't know. And if you did have that, how was it treated? And did it help? Did it help? Have you been sick ever Right. Since? Have you been treated <laughs> with 20 different pharmaceuticals and none of them yep. have worked and we're still treating the same thing over and totally. over and it's probably not that. And or yes. did they absolutely bomb your gut with drugs? Right. Because I need to know that too. Which... And then we're thinking more fungus as a possibility right. or histamine issues. Yeah. yeah. Did we set you up for just a raging biofilm, yep. you know, with that treatment? Um, I really like to ask about history of abdominal or pelvic surgeries. Oh, of course, yeah. for adhesions. Adhesions. Um, yeah. And in that vein, I follow up with, do you have all your organs? Because you'd be surprised at how many people are like, no, I've never had any. Oh, but yeah, I did have hernia surgery when I was a baby. Or, oh, yeah, I got my appendix out when I was nine. But they, they've they blocked that out. Or I ask about C-sections because some people may not associate that. Cause with adhesions. With surgeries, even. Yeah. It just was a different thing in their head. So I specifically asked, do you have all your organs, any organs removed? And then, uh, again, in that vein, endometriosis because a great way to get internal scarring is an inflammatory disorder that can spread throughout the peritoneum yes that it was a very fast way to get internal scarring uh -huh. i would agree yep and it, it does it can land on the bowels it so can cause I, things pulling so a quick patient story because i do feel like it helps like bring it in yep. i had a patient who who came in to see me really really sweet um, young lady. And on the first visit, she's telling me about all of her SIBO-like symptoms. And we start, you know, to taking a menstrual history, which is vital for any female. Yep. And I'm listening to her menstrual symptoms and I'm like, oh, that's bad. Yeah. That's not a normal menstrual One What was her history? One in 10 intense, with endometriosis. So intense uh, uh, abdominal pain. She needs to either take very high dose NSAIDs or she needs to take opioids. opiates. Yep. yep. Uh, she hurts. She gets terribly constipated. She's chronically distended. She, uh, it's like she basically cannot function around her menstruation. So you think she bleeding. probably has endometriosis? So let me finish the story. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, wait till the end. She's bleeding in her abdomen. Spoiler alert, Dr. Gavadia. <laughs> okay, so from the first visit, from the first visit, she'd never seen a gastro. She she worked with her primary a little bit, but really nothing nothing very much. So, you know, this is like one of those, oh, I'm kind of interested in seeing any ND patients. Not mm -hmm. everybody else has failed me patients. And so I'm listening to her. And from the very first visit, I'm like, okay, it does sound like SIBO. You do have all the bloating. You do have the bowel changes. I'm going to guess it's a methane positive, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. But I'm also going to say this is not a normal period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is this marriage that happens between IBS and endo mm -hmm. that we see often. Because, or IBD and endo. Right? Or IBD and endo. But I see SIBO it much more endo. with um, SIBO I, and endo. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that, unfortunately, it's a marriage made Across in hell. the board. It's, yeah, a very, totally. it's a very abusive relationship. <laughs> yeah. um, I so, shouldn't laugh, but it, that's a very good description. So I, so we start treating, right? We go through, she wants to do herbs first, so we go through a round of herbs. She gets into symptomatic improvement for a little bit. Within two cycles, she's back. Mm -hmm. We retest. There's been no... It, I 
was right. It was very methane positive. I think she started in her 50s or 60s with methane, mm-hmm. a peak of 50 or 60 within the first 90 minutes. And so then we circle back around. We treat with antibiotics. She gets less traction, but no improvement. Every cycle, She now she has this awareness that she never had before, mm-hmm. that periods are not supposed to be that painful. Yeah. Right. right. All of a sudden, this awareness. Because she had improvement with the treatment cycles. Yep. And with the other thing that I did right away is I, I have a great GYN that I send people to mm-hmm. who I think is probably the best endo GYN mm-hmm. in Portland. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, let's get a, let's get on her schedule. It's going to be a wait. So we'll do our things. You can cancel, whatever. But let's get let's start moving that process. Yep. So I think we're like five months, six months in. Really, from a big picture view, she has not gotten better. Mm-hmm. She finally goes. She works with the GYN a little bit. And the GYN's like, I'm not ready to call it endo. Let's work you up for primary dysmenorrhea and kind of rule stuff out. Uh, and by the sixth month, she's just debilitated. Did she get on birth control? She. Uh, they tried to put her on birth control. Didn't help. So what happened is... Um, I ended up referring her over to an endosurgeon group, which yeah. I really like. Yeah. I, I like the endosurgeon groups that does the excisions, mm-hmm. not just the ablations. Yep, totally. And uh, she went in and he staged her at stage four, four a endometriosis. Totally, totally. She had endometriomas adhesed to her rectum. Yep. Which is why they were all over her peritoneal cavity. They were all over her intestine, yep. which is why she was having those symptoms. That's it. It's so common. And then they bleed and they're inflamed. I mean, it's so many people are not getting the care that they need for exactly what you just said. Yeah. I, I did have a patient with inflammatory bowel disease. I think it was, I think it's ulcerative colitis and endometriosis. And she had what sounds like an amazing, she's a very motivated uh, patient, super nice. She had a team of surgeons where the colorectal surgeon and the, that's, I think, probably that same group. Endo group. Yeah, they worked together on her surgery because it was so complicated, wow. but she's doing much better now. And I will say, like, getting that excised, getting that inflammatory tissue out is very important for certain cases. Um, but the surgery itself is going to cause adhesions, mm-hmm. too. Right. Even a laparoscopy, because it's minimally invasive from the outside, but inside... It can cause scarring, even if you're just looking around. So the reason why I wanted to bring up this case in particular was because sometimes you're taking a GI history, right, and there's but that. the problem is not the GI. Oh, man. Right. The totally. symptoms are the GI, yep. but the problem is something else, yep. which is the other thing you're looking for in your GI history. Yeah. And right. this is why I love the crossover yeah. with hormones and the gut, because it's so common. And yes. I'm like, I, yes, it's affecting your bowels. Yes, it's making you bloated. This is not your problem. Yes. It's not the root of your problem. So why do we care about asking? about adhesions why does that matter obstructions motility motility for sure adhesions yep. means that the small bowel and the large bowel can't move freely because yep. they're adhesed which obviously is going to cause symptoms yeah and i tell my patients that if things are tugging it allows opportunities for the intestine specifically the small intestine to pool and when um, contents of the digestive tract pool we grow things So I do see it as like a risk for recurrent SIBO, recurrent infections, things like that. Um, We don't want anything pooling in there. Uh, Okay, other things. I ask people, this is going to be a no-brainer, but frequency of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. I chunk it out into like, how often have you needed them in the last five years? In adulthood and then in childhood. And I give examples like for acne, for Mm. um, like people take them um, before intercourse, Mm -hmm. prophylactically, for dental procedures, recurrent sinus infections, like... Usually recurrent ear infections or recurrent strep throat as a kid. Pneumonia, bronchitis. I do think that's one of the reasons I developed Crohn's disease. I had medical doctor parents. Yeah. I took at least two rounds of antibiotics every summer. Right, I had ear right. infections. I was in. A, I was I swimming in a lake nonstop. Yep, yep. I yep. know my gut doesn't work. Yep. 
It works fine now. My my gut's not bad. Mm, yeah, um, well, whatever. Wait, that's a yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm gonna say my gut's not bad because thank God for magnesium. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, magnesium um, is like it was. when it stops working, I'm gonna be bummed. I'm trying my oatmeal recipe. You'll be good. <laughs> I'm going to take your oatmeal recipe and top it with chia. Um, so I also ask about probiotics. Uh-huh. Um, and I specifically want to know, did people feel worse on probiotics? Oh, what are you thinking there? Small bowel. Mm, keep talking. Because you're overloading the small intestine with, it's just got too much already. It can't, if you're taking good probiotics and or like a lot of them, it's too much. And people will get SIBO-like symptoms when they take probiotics if they have SIBO. Mm-hmm. So you're just adding too much in. Do you ask that at all? Always. Okay. And I'm my thought process with probiotics, I feel like ever since the probiotic research has gone to species specific yeah, from totally. from like groups of diverse strains, Strain, yeah. I just don't see as much efficacy as I used to. Yeah. And so I've entered a fermented food train. Yeah. Yeah. So. With some exceptions, you know, but I, yeah, the data on probiotics looks very enticing. Clinically, yes. we've talked about this. Clinically, it's a want want. There, there are some good ones out there, and sometimes we use it. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, dental history. Talk so, about that. Yeah. So I'm asking about like dental procedure history. What kind of dentist you were working with? What they found? Have you received dental care? And then like their own perception. Do, have you had chronic tooth pain? You just haven't gotten care for. You know, or things like that. Because it can seed the gut. Seed the microbiome. Um, and then the last thing, and anything else about dental? I mean, from my perspective, just from a neurotherapy inject, injection perspective, yep. also it's a scar. And mm-hmm. so it can ch- shut down the nervous system totally. because it's a scar that blocks communication yeah. from the peripheral and, and we, central we nervous system. And we start digestion in the mouth. You know, if that's not working, like we have barriers there, we're breaking stuff down, mm-hmm. like we need that working. Um, the last one I'll say here is I, since um, this podcast, ask a whole lot more about allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that yes. I've gotten a lot of uh, improvement in people that were just not getting better because that was a component. So tell me about mm-hmm. allergies and what you're doing to manage them. That is my favorite part about specializing in the GI. Yeah. There are so many layers that you can dive into that help you like almost tease apart what's happening. Yeah. But it that has to be the core of every patient visit, especially a new patient visit. Like what happens oftentimes is they walk in to see either a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor and there's no focus, Mm -hmm. right? And so they end up walking out with, you know, probably a four to $800 bill just for Mm -hmm. the visit and then probably another 2000 worth of testing. And that for me is a, a waste of their finances, but b also a waste of time Mm -hmm. because everyone's time, everyone's time, because when you get all that information back, if you don't know how to prioritize it, then you're like, what's the point? Yeah. Well, and I think even for non-specialists doing family medicine or general primary care, we just know that so many of our issues stem from gut dysfunction from you know, traditional healing systems yeah. to current research on the microbiome. And so even if you're not a specialist, it's still often a good place to start regardless of what the patient has rather than chasing after all these other mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a growing awareness of that. Like people are coming in. I even have patients coming in where their gut's fine, you know, but they're worried about it because they've heard it's the basis of everything and they want to get it fixed up. And I'm like, well, it's also a good starting can, point for nutrition and for movement sure. and all the things. absorption. Like, right. Are you getting your drugs in, right. your nutrients in your food, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It matters. So good to ask these questions. Okay. So I'll give you my take home okay. and then, 
Uh, my take home really is start from the top, work your way down, mm-hmm. really choose your testing, prioritize your testing based on what's the loudest scream, the loudest yep. and has the most dysfunction. Don't start with everything. Choose your battles. Yep. And also don't believe a patient's history. Yeah. Look at the reports. Yeah. Get a records request. Yeah. That's my take home. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I would just say I try to cast a wide net, especially, I mean, new patient visits, like we've talked about, are a lot more work. But the more info you get, you get a clear idea on what you're treating and what you're aiming for. So you're not wasting people's time and money shooting in the dark. I, I think the history is really important just for even looking back on because even if you're going to, st- I generally start with more broad based strategies with nutrition and lifestyle. Yeah. And I order some labs, but not a ton of labs mm-hmm. initially because you, I just don't want to over test and over treat, but yep. it's good to have that initial history. Cause then if you're not making progress, you kind of have a menu of, okay, this is what, that's what I tell patients. The first visit we make a menu yep. of here's where we're going to start. Here's future thoughts for if we're not making progress, but I don't lump all of that together. Cause yeah. I know I can, from that first history, we can always look back and tease apart. Okay. What do we do next? If the basics didn't work. Yeah. The other thing about that first history is you will have patients where you've made like a crap ton of progress, mm. but they, they are, forget. They are in their own lives, <laughs> their own their own bodies. That's it. And so I like to pull it up and say, okay, on the first visit, you said X, Y, and Z. Are yep. these things true anymore? Yeah. And then I, it's like my gentle, I told you so without saying, I told yeah. you so. Yeah. And some people just orient to being kind of like fused with their condition. And even though it's better, you know, they're yeah. still really stuck in that mindset. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think that's really important. Um, and then the only other thing I would say about this is there are a lot of comorbidities with gut stuff. Yeah. Like, we know this. So if if you're doing a thorough intake and you realize their anxiety around their constipation, yep. maybe even more severe than their constipation, don't forget that. Yep. You're going to get way better traction um, and probably a lot better buy-in on whatever you want to do because you get them feeling better. Good point. So Good point. Great episode. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee! <laughs>